Worship. Tonight is March 30th. It is Wednesday night. And we're going to be in John 9 tonight. I think we're going to be in John 9. Okay. Uh, We're going to be in John 9 tonight. And the title is Born Blind. This is probably a fairly familiar story to you. But this has got to be one of the better discourses that occurs in the Bible. Brad, if you want to move, I'm going to be in your line of sight all night. I promise that. So, why don't you move over here? It'd, it'd bless me. Uh, with <laughs> How about that? Okay, tonight is March 30th. It is Wednesday night. We are covering John 9. Our topic is born blind. I know this can be a fairly familiar topic, but this is one of those interactions in the Bible that if you ever grew up with the idea that the Bible is boring or uh, that the events in the Bible were just overly religious people who walked around in a cloud, this, is a, this one just makes me laugh. It always has, and I, I don't know why. We'll see some powerful truths from it, but you'll also see some real human interaction. I mean, they, the Pharisees get into an argument with a guy that gets healed, and to me, it's almost comical. So you can turn to John one or to John nine one. But I want to recap some events for you. Okay, y'all forgive me for not having animation on our uh, projection tonight. This was in a hurry. But in the previous verses, in the previous four or five teachings, we started with Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles and. Remember this where he cries out, If any man thirsts, let him come and drink of me. Right as they're pouring out of a golden vessel into twelve earthen vessels, this is where Jesus really makes a proclamation about him being divine substance. And then you moved on from there to the woman who was caught in adultery earlier in the previous chapter. And you see the whole salvation story in this, this one message about... Uh, recognizing that you're guilty of sin, seeing your accusers dismissed, and leaving to, to walk in a new life with Jesus. Really beautiful story, and how the men's names were written in the dust because they had forsaken the well or spring of living water that Jeremiah had prophesied about. We moved on to Jesus, light of the world. That was in, I don't know, John 8, 12 or 13. And in Jesus, light of the world, among other things, you learn that everything that Jesus did was totally 100% led by the Father. And that in this leading, He provides a beacon, a light, a perfect reflection that we are supposed to follow. And uh, in fact, the way that He did this was to stand in front of that temple and as they were extinguishing the light behind Him in the temple, He cried out, uh, I am the light of the world. If anyone would walk with Me or follow Me, He will not walk in darkness. And then, from our recordings, we get into kind of a strange place because we missed a few uh, messages from being recorded that I taught. And then we taught kind of a salvation message on the spur of the moment uh, right out of John about being free indeed. And I hope it blessed everybody, but I don't want you to forget the flow of events. We move from the leading of the Spirit right into this last category, which is whose child are you? And remember, Jesus was making the statement to everyone that I am the Father's Son because of the way that I act. You see me do these deeds. You are your Father's Son because of the evil intent in your heart and the acts that you want to carry out. He's just got through telling them they're children of the devil. Okay? From there, 
Jesus' proclamation about being known by your acts, if you will, we're going to move into John 9, 1 through 2. And again, our topic is born blind. Y'all forgive me, I'm going to have to turn to read this too since I don't have that open in front of me. Uh, As he went along, he saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You know, this is a question specifically about blindness. But if you think about it, as a Christian, you get this question from skeptics a lot. Oh, it's phrased differently. It's phrased, if God is really a just God, why would he allow all of the suffering in Rodan or (laughs) Indonesia or, you know... uh, Why would he allow this or that? You get, if God's a good God, why do bad things happen? Why did my dog Spot die if God is God? Don't you get those kind of questions sometimes? Uh, There are even some people that are in our church that I remember sitting across the table from getting these very same questions when they were lost. Well, if this is a common question, the answer to it is probably worth memorizing. In John 9.3, Jesus responds to that question, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. You know, these people were not sinless. Jesus is not declaring them sinless. If you, has anybody ever asked you, do you interpret the word literally or figuratively? You'd have to be a moron to to choose one over the other. You, You obviously have to read it and from context decide. But Jesus is not declaring these people sinless. What he's saying is there's a greater issue at work here, guys. Uh, In fact, what he's trying to do is point out that this greater purpose is that God's work would be displayed in their life. Had they sinned? Sure. Were the effects of sin in the world? Absolutely. Is sickness in one sense an effect of sin? Absolutely. The Bible teaches us. Jesus is not contradicting that. He's saying that the, this did not happen specifically because of some sin. This happened for a specific purpose, that God's power might be displayed in your life. Now, if you think about this, you'll encounter all kinds of situations in your life. And you'll think, oh my God, I can't believe this. And you have a tendency to either have the opportunity to look at a glass half full or half empty. Here Jesus is faced with something that he could legally He could, from an intellectual, from a rational standpoint, blame on sin. This blindness is the product of sin at large. He does not do that. He said, no, no, no. This is an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. Christians can learn from this attitude. In fact, there's a pattern. You like my graphs? I got all into the graphs for this message. All trials have a purpose. All of them do. Now... If, if you don't get anything else from this whole message tonight, if I have to go back to that second slide, we will over and over and over. It said, this happened that God's power might be displayed. You need to train that as an automatic response in your life. Because here's the reality. Trials have a purpose. All trials, which we're going to call obstacles, because I'm hoping this will be easier for you to remember, provide an opportunity. All obstacles provide opportunity to overcome. Obstacles provide an opportunity to overcome. If you look at this man's blindness, that's a huge obstacle. In the people's lives, in his life, it's a huge obstacle. But it's an opportunity for God to display His power in the man's life. 
that if there was no obstacle, there would be no opportunity. There's a relationship between obstacles and opportunities. You cannot see the Red Sea split in your life if Pharaoh's not coming at you and you're not facing the Red Sea. But we do not very often get in that position on purpose, do we? I mean, you do everything you can do to avoid every obstacle in your life. Christians are destined for obstacles. Why? Why would a Christian be destined for obstacles? Is it because God wants to pick on you, Matthew? No. We're destined for obstacles because they provide opportunities. And if you do not have the obstacles, you cannot have the opportunities for God's power to be revealed. Once you begin to realize that there's a relationship there, there's a big equal sign. Obstacle provides opportunity. Number one, it's freeing. You can get excited. You can go, oh my goodness. <laughs> Look at this. There's an obstacle before me. Let's get ready to see God come through. Let's overcome. Let's see faith grow. Let's see salvation happen because I see an obstacle. I see an area for God to triumph. That's something that we need to train ourselves to do. And I will be honest. I hear about healing miracles. I hear about all kind of great moves of God. The number one area Christians in their daily life fail is they have no joy because of the obstacles they're dealing with. That's not Christians in here. That's not Christians next door. That's Christians at large. You would never know somebody's a Christian when they're in a trial. And that is precisely the time that you're supposed to be able to see they are a Christian. Because the rest of the time, the lost think, oh, well, Sure, you're smiling. So is every other idiot that got a paycheck today. Tomorrow's payday, isn't it? How about that? <laughs> Good for you. Every obstacle that you face is an opportunity for the power of God to be displayed in your life. Real faith rises to meet life's obstacles and overcomes them. I put that in the very first newsletter that we ever had because we were facing bigger obstacles than we had ever seen in our life. Matt was going to have to move here without a job. Matt was going to have to move here without a house. Matt was going to have to move here with a pregnant wife and two kids. I had just done all of those things and now was in a place where, you know, they didn't meet me at the plane or at the loading dock or getting out of the car with a red carpet and say, hey, great man of God, what must we do? Let us come to your church. It didn't happen. You know, the first few weeks we began to preach in here, I was preaching to an audience of one, Jennifer. And I was so excited when we met a neighbor who came. 30-year crack at it, in and out of rehab. I'm not disappointed at that. What I'm trying to say is we were facing obstacles, but it's an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. Every obstacle is, and just a side note here, the biggest obstacles you'll ever face will come from your brothers and sisters. Expect it. Expect it. Look forward to it. Don't throw them away when it happens. When somebody provides a great big fat obstacle, just think, oh, this is a chance to even prove to the body of Christ God's with me. Think about that. This makes every negative thing that happens to you a positive thing. This is not motivational speaking. I'm not going to work for Zig Ziglar. I, I promise this. Now, I'm telling you what the Word says about it. If you don't believe me, let's read the next slide. Wow, I don't know if I can read that. The Word of God tells us how to view trials. This goes all the way back to Jesus' favorite book. Chris Sims used to call Deuteronomy the honeypot. And the reason he called it the honeypot was because all of his favorite go-to scriptures were there. You know who else quoted from Deuteronomy all of the time? Jesus. Here's Deuteronomy 7.19. You saw with your own eyes the great trials. Listen to that. The great trials. This is God speaking and he calls the trials great. 
I doubt your trials rise to that level that God would call them great. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. When God called a nation to be His very own nation, when God called the nation and said, this nation will be mine, I am purchasing them, I am bringing them out, I am redeeming them, they'll never be slaves again. When He did that, He told them, the same way you saw me deliver you, the same power that was on display there is with you now and when you face people, I will use it against them. God will do the same to them, do the same to those people as you've seen Him do to other enemies. Now think about that as a Christian though. We say, oh yeah, He saved me. He set me free. I'm so happy. Oh, happy day. Then you get your first trial and you forget all of the power that He saved you with and you get the molly grubs and get down and all you can do is whine to your friends and family. This is not the mark of a Christian. This is the mark of a quitter. And Christians are not called to be quitters. Hebrews says, if you shrink back, He will not be pleased with you. And we don't admit to that. But what we're doing when we begin to grumble about a trial is shrinking back from the opportunity that God has to display His power and grumble. We cannot do it. And there's a reason for that. But I want to read to you some other scriptures about trials and then we'll get to the reason in another little graph. In Luke 22, verses 28 through 30, Jesus has a divine principle here. It's a statement, but I promise you it's also a principle. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred on me, one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus said, a kingdom was given to me by my Father, and I am bestowing it upon you. Why? Because you stood by me in my trials. It is required, Paul said, of those that have been given a trust to prove faithful. If you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you must stand with Jesus in what he calls his trials. You say, well, we're talking about mine. You are Christ. You are the body of Christ. You remember when Stephen was being stoned? Jesus stood yeah, I mean, you remember that? In the Bible, a Christian is spoken of. In fact, Jesus speaks to Paul and says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus had been ascended for many years at that point. But Jesus attributed the trials that his body on earth was going through to him personally. You want to be with Jesus? You want to see the kingdom of God? You have to stand with Jesus in the trials you face. That's what that scripture teaches us. First Thessalonians. It's ironic to me. I put two scriptures out of Thessalonians for a reason. First Thessalonians 3, verses 2 through 4, and Second Thessalonians 1, 3 through 5. I put on this slide and in this message for a reason. These are the very books that teach us how to endure trials and that they're expected and that you should look forward to them and embrace them that the modern church has used to teach us you will not have to endure trials. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that a bit odd? Boy, the devil's crafty. First Thessalonians 3, 2 through 4. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen you and encourage you in your faith. 
so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted or that you would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. If you have the opportunity to sit down with Paul, in addition to hearing the gospel that he lays out in Corinthians 15 about Jesus being resurrected and us resurrected in him and death being swallowed up in the victory of life, in addition to that, he would say, and good news, now that you're in this race, you're going to be attacked because you're on God's side and there is somebody whose name means opposition. But here's the thing. Paul was probably more attacked than anybody else that you've ever read about, right? I mean, how many times beaten with rods, shipwrecked, snake bit, uh, abandoned by his peers, pressed by all of the pressures of the church, churches that he loved, hungry, naked, cold, all of those things, right? Do you love him more or less for it? It was an opportunity in Paul's life for God's power to be displayed. In fact, when Paul says, hey, look, Lord, Man, not once, not twice, but three times I've been asking you about this. Would you remove this heavy burden for me? Whatever that burden was. I said, no, 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 Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. If God's power is made perfect in our weakness, if every obstacle is an opportunity for God's power to be displayed, why as Christians do we run from weakness? Why do we hide our weakness? Why do we pretend like we don't have it or despise it so? Why do we look at obstacles as if they're overwhelming us? Obstacles are opportunities. Second Thessalonians 1, 3-5 says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. We're going to find out there's a relationship between the obstacles you face, you face, perseverance, maturity, and faith. There's a relationship there that will cause you to want to see that glass and go, wow, I know it looks half empty, but it's half full. I'm excited about this opportunity. I'm telling you, I've learned this lesson. I'm not perfected in it, but... I meet trials differently today than I used to because I've been delivered so many times that now it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to happen. And if I am overwhelmed, it's for a brief time. You back off. You get with God about it. You refuse to dwell in self-pity. You quit picking up the phone and talking to everyone around you and you start taking it to the throne because He's the one that is leading you. He's the one that can do something about it. I know this is not the kind of sermon that you take pom-poms and you get excited and say, wow, please, preacher, give me some more of that. But friends, this is how you mature in the body. It's not by understanding eschatology. It's not about being able to write about deep theology. If you could come in here and explain to me all the various concepts of oneness or trinity and cause them to merge in some perfectly articulated way, I would be proud of you but not nearly as proud as if you endured every trial that came before you with a smile on your face. Now, I know that there are Christians in places that cannot do one of those two things and can do the other. You need to decide which group you want to be in. 
You know, would you rather be friend? Guy with the power of God at his disposal because every time he was beaten or every time he was thrown into a new prison, he saw it as a new opportunity to preach to people? Or would you rather be a great theologian with no power of God at your disposal? See, I'm, I'm going to opt for God's favor. Two more scriptures on this note. Notice this. The last one talks about maturity and these talk about joy. First Peter 1, 6-9. In this you greatly rejoice. Now, when you think about God rejoicing, when you think about men of God rejoicing, number one, the word rejoice means to leap and spin with joy. Okay? Now, if we're going to do that greatly, I, I've got a picture in my mind of exuberance, of something like Gabe when I give him a chocolate bunny on Easter. You know? Maybe after I gave him a few. You know? Something exciting. In this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you hear what he's talking about? He says, even if you don't see it now, if you don't see Him now, you are receiving the salvation of your souls, so you have a glorious, inexpressible joy. So why do so many... I, I was watching a show the other night on TV with Jennifer where they were preaching. And man, they panned a vast audience. And I'm talking about they were sucking on lemons. And I just looked at Jennifer. I said, either the pastor's not doing his job or this is an evangelism meeting and they are all lost. Because Christians ought to be joyful. I don't want anybody to look at our church and think that. I don't want anybody to look at my life and think that. I have gone so far in this little room as I preach to say, if you don't feel like smiling, fake it until it's a reality. Okay, and, and that's because the Word tells us this. James 1, 2 through 5 is going to be an important point. Okay, so I'm going to read it and then we'll move to the slide about it. Consider it pure joy, not something diluted, not weakened, not watered down, the pure stuff from God, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I don't want you to get the idea that this is just colorful language. You know, this occurs too many times in the Bible, joy and trials and maturing all together for this just to be colorful, poetic language. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Why would you consider it joy? Because you know it is working out something for your benefit. The testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be counted as mature and complete, not lacking in anything. You know, Ephesians tells us that the reason that apostles, prophets, teachers, pan, uh, pastors, I can't speak tonight, apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists exist is to help the body of Christ until it reaches a place of completeness and maturity. The book of Ephesians tells us that. But you know what? Evidently, they're not enough. They're not all there is to that process. You evidently have to have some experiences yourself, the same ones that they had. 
And watch this relationship in this graph. When you start with a trial at the top, it leads to the testing of your faith. That's what a trial is. Let's not deceive ourselves, okay? When you face a trial and you're upset and you're sad and you're whining and you're complaining, let's not call it anything other than what it is. James said, this is the testing of your faith. When you begin to frame it in those terms, we don't want to be known as people that don't have faith, do we? You know, it's okay to say, oh, well, my job's just hard. He's just tired. You know, she's just a little down. We, we don't mind people thinking that about us. But if you bring it right down to where the rubber meets the road in Christianity, now this is a testing of my faith, oh, all of a sudden we get real super spiritual, don't we? Well, that's okay. Then let's call it what it is. A trial is the testing of your faith. The purpose of this testing of your faith, according to God's holy word, is to develop perseverance in you. So, when you say, I just don't know why I'm in this position. I do. You're being tested. Your faith is being tested. But I didn't do anything. You're being tested so that you can develop perseverance. Get this wheel in your mind here. Once you have developed some perseverance, it shows that you are gaining a level of maturity. Once you reach complete maturity, friends, you'll get glorified. You know, there are times that I know in your life you've spoken of yourself as mature. I know people that hear this CD have spoken of themselves as mature and somebody else is not mature. Uh, kind of in this sense. Well, you know, those of us that have moved on to the deep things of God. Or, you know, so-and-so is just a baby in their faith. You know what maturity in, in the Bible is, according to James? It's being able to handle the testing of your faith with perseverance. That's what maturity in the faith is. And if you ever get complete in that, you'll get glorified. So this is a lifelong circle here. I want to remind you, 1 Peter 2.2 tells us that like newborn babies, we are to crave pure spiritual milk. Why? So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. When we handle obstacles as something other than opportunities, when we look at a trial and go, Oh my God! What's going on here? When we act like that, what we're showing is that our faith is being tested and we're still babies, not yet beyond the milk. See, because he says that like babies, you'll crave pure spiritual milk and grow up in your salvation. Well, where on the chart is the grown up in your salvation? It's way past the testing of your faith. It's past the perseverance. It's all the way into the maturity section. See, when we begin to frame it in terms like this, you will not allow yourself you, you'll take a sober judgment of yourself and you'll say, you know what? When I act like that, I'm showing I am in spiritual diapers. And your pride, the only good kind of pride you have, will compel you to be more godly because you won't want to be viewed that way. You understand? Now, I am totally preaching to the choir here. I'm telling you my thought processes. I didn't get this out of a book other than the Bible. I'm telling you how I think about these things because it's produced in me an overcoming desire. Obstacles are opportunities to overcome. That's a, that's a part of my life just as much as putting on my right and left shoe. And it needs to be a part of all of our lives because James says it's necessary for us to mature. Do you all have this cycle of Christian growth in your mind? You might ought to write that in your Bible somewhere. Solar system. This this be a good one to put on your mirror right next to those ten things I told you God's Word says about you. 
That way, when you wake up and you think, I'm going to start my day in a negative fashion because I hate my job, I hate the people that I work around, God's abandoned me here, my calling will never come about, I'm broke, how am I going to get to work, my car doesn't work, whatever it is that's there, you say, wow, my faith's being tested today and I'm going to pass this test. This is not so that you can be remorseful about your behavior yesterday. This is so that you can be empowered for your behavior to be better tomorrow. And it comes right from the Word. Oh, incidentally, uh, I guess I clicked past it too fast. Well, here we go. I love this technology, don't you? Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. In Christ, not only are there babies craving pure spiritual milk, there's also an elementary school. Okay? And it's interesting that if you follow what Hebrews 6 is teaching, what the elementary truths are, they're beyond most of us. That's not all that encouraging, is it? Mm-mm. No, it's kind of embarrassing. The American church is the worst in the world. And you know why the American church is the worst in the world? We're the most blessed. If we had more obstacles, we would be more mature. You know, you know why we are still marveling that a little five-foot guy came from... Uh, Where's he from, Matt? Nepal. And preached to people. It, it was not eloquence of speech. It, it was not a degree from seminary showing how learned he was. It was one concept that he had got. If pride comes in, power leaves you. He said, pride comes in, power goes out. This guy had learned from the obstacles in his life how to be mature in Christ. So among all of us who were exposed to him, he's a hero. Think about that for a minute. Paul is a guy that we hold higher than anyone else. And you can say it's because of what he wrote, but you're lying. It's because of what he endured. We hold him in high esteem for that. You want to be mature in the body of Christ? Show that you can endure trials. Get a mature perspective. It helps. These are two very basic scriptures that if you spend any time around me, you hear me say all of the time. Some might even say that I twist them and contort them out of context. It works. Okay? Acts 17, 26-28. From one man He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. If God determined boundaries for you, if He put the exact places that you would live, if that was in His mind, then surely He knows what you're enduring at your job or what you're enduring in your relationship with your mother, brother, sister, father, cousin, daughter, whatever it is. Surely He knows what trials you're facing and why. Why would He allow them to be there? He wants to display power in your life. He wants to give you the opportunity to overcome. He wants you to reach out and find Him. And what He is, is your source. Your source for everything. Sometimes trials come over and over and over and over to teach you how to contact God. To teach you how to be in touch with the source. Not pastor, not brother, not anyone else. Him. He wants you to be close to Him. And when Israel didn't get it, He just let them spend a little more time in the desert. You know? When they didn't get it in the time period of the judges, He just let them be oppressed a little bit longer. And then when they'd cry out to Him, He'd send them a deliverer until they would fall into it again. We're the same way. 
Oh God, I need help, I need help, I need help, I need help, I need help. Until there's really a sincere desire for contact with Him, not deliverance from your problem. And then the deliverance usually comes. How much time do you spend praying to be delivered from something rather than through it? Now you've heard me teach it. You know that we are delivered through and not from. But how much time do you have on your mind, Lord, get me out of here. I hate this. Put me in some other situation. Let me work with somebody else. Whatever it is. Instead of, Lord, how can I handle this better? Show me a way to reflect Your glory and Your power in this situation. How much time? I know why it's quiet in here. I want to go crawl in a hole myself as I was studying for this. So the first Scripture that I think will help give you a mature perspective is, is Acts 17.26 because at the very least, this is one Scripture you can point to that says He determined the boundaries that are in my life and the exact place I would live. And He did it for a reason. Now here's another one. Romans 8.28-29, through 29, little kids can quote, and I know that. And the truth is, it's talking about Israel. But why is it talking about Israel? Israel was enduring stumbling and obstacles unlike any nation had ever been given. I mean, these people were considered enemies of the Gospel. And Paul was encouraging them, saying, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. Now, Preston Coles, who's probably much wiser than I am, pointed out to me a very long time ago, this does not say that all things work together for the good. That's what you hear quoted always. It says, in all things, God works. Guys, look around the room. You know what that means? That means at Pain Care, at Kenmore Electric, at BP, at Walgreens, God is working for your good. That means in your relationship with that one relative that gets under your skin and you'd like never to see again, in my case, several relatives, God is working. He is working. Boy, they won't that free you? If every obstacle you see is an opportunity for God's power, if every situation you get into is the exact place God chose for you to be, if in everything in your life you see God working for good, how can you be anything but filled with pure joy? These are the kind of messages though people hear. It goes in one ear and out the other as you pass through these doors. And tomorrow you got the molly grub spirit. We can't. We can't, and whoever hears this message in a CD, in a car, on the radio, whatever it is that they hear it, they can't. You cannot leave this unchanged. Or you know what you're doing? You're falling into the traps James said, a hearer of the Word and not a doer. This is Christianity. You cannot believe that He saves your soul. In fact, Peter equates the two. If you do not believe He's delivering you through the trial. And you know what? how you know whether somebody believes it? According to Peter is their inexpressible, glorious joy or not. In fact, when Paul covered this very same topic with the Galatians, he finally stops in the middle of his writing and goes, what happened to your joy? Who cut in on you? You were running a good race. What has happened to your joy? The way that Paul knew some distance away was he was hearing reports, they're unhappy. They're not smiling anymore. They're all burdened with something. Christians ought not be this way. The timetable. As we move on in John, you know, we've got, Jesus, why did this happen? And, you know, is it because his daddy was bad or because he was bad? And Jesus says, no, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. He goes on in John 9, 4 to say, and as long as it's day, we must do the work of Him who sent me. Night is coming when no man can work. There's a timetable, guys. You know, how long will you dwell in discontentment? 
There is a timetable in your life that God has to work with. Jesus said, as long as it's day, we must do the work of Him who sent me because night's coming when nobody can work. Some of you are 30 or 40 years into this. Only 30 or 40 years into this. A few of you may be just a couple more. You are further into your work day than other people. But here's the thing. Nobody knows when their work day ends. We just know it's coming. This doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand, and yet this is a misunderstood verse, so let me read it to you. The key to understanding this comes from our previous teachings in John. I have told you that light is always associated with life. Now, it can be revelation, it can be all kinds of things, but when Jesus says He's the light of the world, He's telling you, I am the source of life for the world. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the light or life shined in darkness, that's what it was. It was light shining in the darkness. And I've spent 15 or 16 messages teaching you that, so I won't, won't go over it again. But what this then says to you is as long as you're in the day or the life, do God's work because night or death is coming when no one can work. Guys, your lives could be required of you tomorrow. And when you stand before that judgment seat of Christ, don't you want to have gone out with inexpressible glorious joy? You remember how the good news started? The angels came and told the shepherds, we bring you good news of great joy. You know, this is a requirement for Christians. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And I realize I'm quoting half of a verse. But the idea here is, there is an appointment all of us have with death. And it's true. In Christ, we have victory over death, right? Wouldn't everybody say that? Wouldn't you say, in Christ, we have victory over death? I mean... Woo! Rah, rah, rah. The reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. I will. This grave ain't no grave going to hold this body down, right? We got this overcoming power that the grave won't even hold us down. But I got a traffic ticket today, so I'm going to be upset for a month. But sister so-and-so was mean to me, so I'm going to act like I'm lost for a month. But my job is hard, so hey, I'm going to check out of Christianity this week. I believe in all this power that's going to pull me right out of that grave, man. I'm going to get a glorified body, blow the doors off this thing. But I'm overcome when somebody eats my lunch. One check bounced and that's it. My faith has died. And we excuse it in every way possible. We see it as anything other than the testing of our faith. I like to quote those scriptures that say the testing of our faith that show that it's genuine. But what if it doesn't show it's genuine? Friends, Gird yourselves up with the Word. Let's do what it says. Matthew 7.21 is the verse that got me saved. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I read this to you for two reasons. One is it's the Father's will that you be full of joy, that you be overcoming in obstacles. But the other reason is, this is on the timetable. Don't waste your life. We only have so many hours of day to do this in. Because there's an appointment coming that we can't stop. Fourth quarter, baby. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is our example. Moving on from John 9, 4, Jesus makes this statement. He has just taught on it. These obstacles that happen, they happen so that God's power can be displayed. And guys, I only have so many hours to teach this stuff before night comes, before my death comes. 
So while I'm in the world, John 9, 5 says, I'm going to be the light of the world. I'm asking you to make up your mind to do the same thing. While you're in this world, be the light of the world. Shine forth that Jesus said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. Act like you got it. If you're going to call yourself by His name, act like you got it. And if you don't feel like it, fake it. Because you know why? Jesus is our example. And He says while He's in the world, He's going to be the light or the life of the world. I am too. Regardless of what comes my way. They can come to Jesus and say, Herod's trying to kill you. He say, hey, you tell that fox, I'm going to press on today, tomorrow, and the next day. <laughs> Y'all, did meet the parents there. Jesus knew from the moment He encountered the situation that He had a teaching opportunity. His light or our life is an example. You remember He stood up in John 8, 12 and cried out about this? He said, I am the light of the world. If you walk in me, you'll never walk in darkness. He didn't say, unless you're going through a difficult time. He didn't say, unless you have a difficult boss or financial troubles. He said, if you're following me, man, you're following the light of the world, you'll never walk in darkness. We want to pretend that we're walking behind Jesus in the light and the whole time we're acting like we're in darkness. It can't be done. It cannot be done. You make up your mind, just like Jesus, our example in John 9, 5. While you are in this world, you be the light of it. In fact, the Bible says you're supposed to be like a star shining out in this crooked and perverse generation. What does that tell you? You're in a crooked and perverse generation? It's an opportunity. It's great. You're going to shine more brightly. Daniel even said it. Daniel 12 teaches about it. We quoted about the resurrection. It says this knowledge is going to increase and wickedness is going to increase. But those that rise will rise to shine like the stars in the heaven. The wickedness around you makes you shine that much more brightly. And this is not a yin-yang session here today. I'm just telling you a right way to look at this. Salvation typified. This is John 9, verses 6 through 9. Having said this, he spit on the ground. He says, hey guys, I'm going to be your example. I only got so many days to work and then night's coming. I'm going to set an example for you because I'm the life of this whole world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. John was kind enough for us non-Jewish folks to say this word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No. He just looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. <laughs> Let me tell you why this typifies Jesus, why this typifies Christianity. Salome, is, this is just a picture for you, okay? I'm not telling you this is a technical teaching. I'm telling you it's a picture. Salome means sent. Didn't John tell us that? You know what else means sent? Apostle. Apostle was a word for a Roman ship sent from one place to another. Apostle loosely translated means one who is sent. So if you th keep that in mind, while we know that this guy doesn't quite get saved at this point, he's definitely on the right track. And uh, truthfully, we're all blind until we encounter Jesus. What comes out of Jesus' mouth and touches us, heals us and saves us. Then we must go and wash in the Word, the pool of the apostles, the instruction of the apostles. Our neighbors, you remember? Ah, that's not the guy. Yeah, it is. No, it's not. He just looks like him. Our neighbors will hardly recognize us because of God's life-changing ministry at work within us. 
See, when something comes from Jesus and it touches you, and then you go to bathe in the water that comes from the Word of God, your life changes. So if you see opportunity tonight where maybe you hadn't done so well, it's all right. Go bathe in the instruction of the apostles in whatever form that comes. And then let your life change. The result should be that your neighbors, the people around you, should see change. This is not that guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's the guy. And you can sit down and say, whoa, I am the man. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I guess it's all where you put the emphasis, right? <laughs> Simple testimony. In John 9, verses 10 through 15, we see this simple guy. Now, I want you to keep in mind, this could not have been a highly educated guy. How do I know that? He's begging. He's not in school. Not in the school with Pharisees. Hillel's or Gamaliel's not teaching him. He can't read. He's blind. Okay. Pretty well lowest in the food chain. Listen to this simple testimony. John 9, verse 10 through 15. How then were your eyes opened? He demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud. He put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought, the, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see Sometimes we make our testimonies so complicated. You know, I told you we were going to talk about testimonies tonight before we got started. Sometimes we go into such gritty, gory, nitty, dirty details. As if by telling people how bad off we were, it magnifies how great Jesus is. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your help. I don't need to know about the time you stole gum when you were three to know He's a big God. Other times, we get so incredibly detailed, nobody could ever follow it. I mean... I was interested in this testimony until I got to the 37th page in which I fell asleep. <laughs> this simple testimony of this guy is so powerful. And watch, we're going to cover this ground again. Hey, dude, I had a problem and he fixed it. Well, where is he? I don't know. Who is he? I don't know. He, I had a problem and he fixed it. Boy, isn't that a neat testimony? I had a problem and he fixed it. The results of his testimony are found in John 9.16. Some of the Pharisees said... This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others ask, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Do you remember what Jesus said? Well, he's going to say it again here in the future more succinctly. But basically, earlier in the chapter, earlier in the previous chapter, he said, hey guys, I do the things my father told me to do. You do the things your father told me to do. The acts of Jesus are supposed to divide people. Now this guy, not Jesus, but this guy, his testimony, what's it doing? It's dividing them. I don't know, I had a problem and he fixed it. This no, he can't be godly. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. Well, did miracle, didn't he? Your testimony ought to take people to a place of division. Divided. Is that good? Could division be good? I received emails this week telling me how bad division was. You know, it's kind of like discrimination. Is discrimination a bad thing? Well, it could be. Division could be a horrible thing. Could discrimination be a good thing? I have discriminating taste. I don't eat just anything that you put before me. That's a form of discrimination. I uh, have discriminating taste in my activities, too. 
I won't do just anything that comes to mind. Discrimination could be a good thing or bad. Well, division is the same way. Your testimony will move people into belief or harden them into unbelief. God's intent is to get people off the fence. You know what's funny about that? It's where we're most comfortable. I'd like to be known as a Christian at church and I'd like to be known as a heathen at work because the heathens won't expect anything of me then. Right? And the Christians will love me and they'll accept me and bless me and maybe buy my meal. Your testimony will move people into belief or harden them into unbelief if your testimony is simply what God's done in your life. God's intent is to get people off the fence. Now, these are familiar scriptures. Revelation 3.15 says God wants to puke you out of His mouth if you're neither hot nor cold. His goal is that you be one or the other. You know, pick a side and get on it. This is Elijah's message. Elijah said, hey, Israel, choose today who you're going to serve. I don't particularly care myself. If you'd like to serve Baal, get over there with them. And if you'd like to serve God, get over here with me. By the way, after we have this fire calling exercise, I'm going to kill all of you. You know? <laughs> I, doesn't sound like he was just bleeding hard over those that decided to go serve Baal. Luke 12 says it well, though. Luke 12, verse 51. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you the truth, guys. Think about this. Would you not at first glance say, yes, Jesus came to bring peace on the earth? He's the Prince of Peace? He says, no, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, I know the in-law part's not nearly as hard to believe as the rest, but look at the extent that he went to show that in what in most people's lives would be considered the closest relationships, family. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace in your families. I came to bust them wide open. Came to bring division. Why? Jesus is a dividing line in the sand for all of human history. Get with Him or you are against Him. And as you testify, I had a problem and He fixed me, it causes people to either get with Him or against Him. It will move you that way personally and it will move everybody who hears you that way. I found out you get a new family, the church. And your other family can come join it. I even told mine that. Division illustrated. In John 9, verse 17, we start with these words. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What had you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. Boy, isn't that just a brilliant statement? It's going to come back really to bite him, though. You know, well, what do you say about this guy? I mean, after all, he opened your eyes. That's right. This is the guy with the experience. He should be able to speak with unique authority. Everybody else that didn't experience this, what are they babbling about? John 9, 17. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. You'll find out later. This guy really didn't know who Jesus was. He had heard about him. He certainly had never seen him before. <laughs> you got me? Here, go wash. You know, he came back, he could see Jesus wasn't there. <laughs> He's a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. 
Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. That's good. There are some parents that have just <laughs> disowned him right there. But how, can, how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. I don't know why that particular exchange just gets me, but it does. To me, that's just as funny as could be. Eh, we don't know. He's old enough. Ask him. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided, and this is the Jewish leadership, not Jews at large, had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Did Jesus come to bring peace in that family? No. He came to bring division because when God set the one man free, it then becomes incumbent upon everybody who saw that to pick a side. See, that's what's wrong with our lives. When we give a clear testimony to the power of God, it forces people to pick a side, which is what God intended. When you send mixed messages, eh, I'm a Christian, God bless me, let's all get rich, read books from Walmart. And then the next week, when things aren't going well, oh, you know, I'm the tail and not the head. How could people pick a side? You don't know what side you're on. When your faith is tested... And that's what's happening. It should cause in you perseverance to rise. And as that perseverance rises, you're said to be mature. Christians are measured in what they've overcome. The measure of a man is not how many cars he has, how many wives, a lot of countries it might be, but not here. Not how much money. It's how much have you endured for Jesus. Because that's what maturity is. Those that have persevered. He's of age, ask him. So his parents basically disown him there. Listen to this. In John 9, 24. Friends, that's another thing. If you really want the power of God to work in your life, if you want blind eyes open, if you want healings, if you want God to work in your life, you also have to get prepared for some loss. You know, this way is narrow. It is narrow. In fact, it will require you to get single file right behind Jesus just to survive. You can't walk side by side with everybody and just can't we all get along, suck on lollipops, dance in the daisies together as we go to heaven. It doesn't work that way. It really doesn't. In fact, you will find out it is awful lonely at times because all you can see is Jesus ahead of you. Might be lots of people there supporting you and behind you, but you can't, it's so narrow you can't even turn to see Him. You need to think about that. Everything you do is not going to be supported by even the people closest to you. Maybe not even me. John 9.24, a second time they summoned the man. Now, a summons. If you get a summons today, what's that, where's that mean you're going? Court. Court. If I get a summons, I'm not all that happy about it usually. They, they give him a summons a second time. The idea is a courtroom setting here. And listen to what they say. A second time they summoned him. John 9.24, the man who had been blind, give glory to God, they said. We know that this man is a sinner. <laughs> Give glory to God is a unique phrase in the Bible. It occurs in Joshua 7, 14. And in that setting, oh, that was on the screen. <laughs> in that setting, Joshua is speaking with a criminal. Somebody who has broken God's spiritual 
and civil law. And this charge is given as a solemn oath. The way you might say, I don't want you to show, the way you might say, Sir, do you understand the penalty for perjury? Do you understand that? And do you understand that you're under oath here today? Like a lawyer might do that. That's what they're doing. They have this guy in a courtroom setting saying, Give glory to God. Tell us this man's a sinner. In other words, the only way God's going to get glory out of this is if you tell me what I want to hear. Isn't there a whole lot of people out there that that's how they think they get glory from God? So they use this very interesting solemn charge in an almost court-like setting. Listen to what Jesus says. In Matthew 10, verse 19, But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Guys, this fellow is in a courtroom-like setting. He's ignorant. He's blind. Or has been blind. He, he's not going to argue with them out of his great vast learning, his unique ability to articulate in some special way. This guy understood what Smith Wigglesworth would later quote, the man with the experience is not at the mercy of the man who merely has an argument. The Pharisees pointed out rightly earlier, what do you say about it? It's your eyes he opened. Boy, that's going to be the hammer blow on their head. Because when it comes down to it, this is not an argument about what anybody thinks. It's an argument about what the man experienced. I encourage you, in your life with trials, quit getting into arguments with yourself about whether you are capable of overcoming it, about whether you have enough resources to overcome it, and remind yourself of the experience you had with God. Did He save you or not? And if He saved you, then He will complete His work and quit acting like He won't. When you're talking with other people, your testimony does not have to be complicated. You do not have to explain why there is suffering in Indonesia. You simply have to explain that you had a problem and you have experienced, key word here, experienced a solution. And it's reflected in your life. If, of course, your life is changing. If it's not changing, you're kind of up that proverbial stream. Because you don't have evidence in your life. You're not enduring trials. You do not have great joy. You look just like your enemy. Hmm. The man with the experience. John 9.25, he begins to, to really put it on these Pharisees good. Okay? John 9.25, he replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind. And now I see. That really is the crux of the matter, friends. This is the argument you need to take yourself to. My faith is being tested. I used to have a problem. I was lost. And He saved me. If that's true, He'll save me here. If it's not true, maybe I need to go home. This guy brought this argument to an essential experience in his life. You need to take every struggle in your life to an essential experience. And the truth is, in Christ, you've had a lot of them. The man with the experience is never at the mercy of the man who merely has an argument. The things that go on in your head that conquer your faith are not experiences. They're arguments. The experiences you've had is that track record behind you of every obstacle that God has already caused you to overcome. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This guy knows this is getting absurd at this point, and so he answers, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Come on, guys, tell me the truth. You want to become his disciples too? <laughs> he had to know that was incendiary. Incendiary. 
He's, he's, he's being a smart aleck. How else, I mean, how else could you read that? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Now, I just pondered on this for a minute. Had any of them ever met Moses? How did they know Moses was a good guy? Because of something that was written. And now they have a guy in front of them actually doing. And they will not believe what they see because they're clinging to something that was written that actually spoke about the other guy too. Boy, how trivial and twisted our thinking can get. You look at a guy and say, wow, that dude just healed that one from blindness. And the first thought that comes to your mind is this can't be from God because it's on the Sabbath? I mean, but we do the very same thing. I mean, we really do. We will throw away somebody because we don't like their outward appearance, not having any idea that they're doing great things for God in their prayer closet. You know? So-and-so's got buck teeth and they talk too much. I can't stand to be around them. And they're a warrior that God has called. You know? They hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. <laughs> I love this answer. The man answered, Now that's remarkable. <laughs> you don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this were not, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is essentially the argument Jesus has been given. He's been saying, hey, you do what your father does, I do what mine does, you'll see it in what I do. He's going to bring it home in the next chapter and say, hey, don't believe me unless. Do not believe me unless you see it. This guy resorts to the same argument. He says, now this is remarkable. You guys are going to sit here and argue with me, the man with the experience that actually did this, and you're saying you don't know where he comes from? Come on. Would God listen to a guy that was a sinner? To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Why did they think he was steeped in sin at birth? He's born blind. That's why the Pharisees asked the original question. Why do you think he was born blind? Why did Jesus say that God's power might be displayed. Now, in this opportunity, there was an obstacle here. He's born blind. We have an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. That's what half the message is about. The other half is, in that displaying this power, it is going to move you into one category or the other. Some will despise you, tell you you're steeped in sin and throw you out, and some will believe. We are supposed to be sending clear messages by viewing our obstacles as opportunities and allowing God to overcome. You see it in their lives. You see the division that it caused. You see how this people viewed the very same event and came to two drastically different conclusions. And you know what? God's okay with that. He said, I want you to be hot or cold. Just don't want you to be in the middle. I am certain that when this was done, everybody in earshot was either hot or cold. That's God's design. A man named Reed Methvin told me one time before I preached. He's not a Christian, by the way. He says, Son, I'm going to go to that thing tonight, mostly because I want to eat with y'all. I mean, he told me we were cooking some kind of deer chili or something that he was excited about. He goes, When you preach, don't, keep, don't make it too long. And for God's sake, move us. Nothing's worse than going to a church and not knowing what you were supposed to do. That's what he said. For God's sake, move us. Spiritual movement. There's a pattern. You like my chart? How about that? There's a pattern 
These are hard to work with, by the way. Yeah. Uh, they're easy in that there's templates, but I've never failed to foul them up. But it was an obstacle. <laughs> there's a pattern for spiritual movement. People get touched by God. That develops a testimony. That testimony is supposed to move people to either hot or cold, and judgment will occur. The touch categories in Acts 2.21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, because He will touch them in some way. You can't be saved without having an experience with God. I don't care who you are. The testimony part, Luke 21.13, this will result in your being witnesses to them. You being touched by God should result in you being a witness. The way the Bible speaks about witness is like light, though. You know, when I turn on those lights, it's not that it screams at you audibly. It's something that you see, you know. Joy is a visible thing. It doesn't even have to be vocalized. You can tell when somebody's happy. Once you've been touched and you have a testimony, it should produce a hot or cold reaction. Acts 26, verse 20 says, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Your deeds should show that you're hot or cold. Judgment is something that everybody's going to face. Romans 14 says in the 12th verse, So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's you, even after you've been touched by God, and that's the person that was offended by your testimony and went to the cold side. Dark side. We've got Star Wars coming up. <laughs> the kindness and judgment of Jesus are displayed. This is where we're going to close. In John 9.35, uh, going on down through verse 38 for this segment, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. The guy, he's suffering loss because of Jesus. I would say he suffered more gain than loss, just like you. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now get this. Jesus heard they had thrown him out. Did the guy have to go find Jesus? Now, the report came to Jesus and Jesus went and found him in his hour of need. See, we don't serve the kind of God that is unapproachable. We don't serve the kind of God that makes you do all of the work. The reality is this guy was not even sure Jesus was the Messiah yet. He thought he was a pretty cool guy who opened his eyes. But when Jesus heard that the guy was in trouble, that harm had come to him, Jesus sought him out. God's not far from you. If you're in trouble, He is seeking you out. In fact, the Bible says that He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He's with you even to the end of the age. Jesus heard, you might even say He heard a prayer, and then He came. Do you believe the Son of Man? Who is He, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe Him. We're not talking about somebody who was advanced in his learning, but was He powerful? Jesus said, you've now seen Him. In fact, He is the one speaking to you. Now, you could just read right over that. You've seen Him. In fact, He's the one speaking to you. Does that have special meaning for this guy, though? You've now seen Him. It's the first time. First time. In fact, I bet when Jesus put that mud in His eyes, He got a little bit of a glimmer and didn't know what He was seeing because He was born blind. Then He went and washed and came back and He's attacked immediately. Isn't that like being saved? little glimmer of Jesus right when you get saved, you're attacked immediately by all the powers of this world. But Jesus comes and meets with you. He teaches you. One of the best things that He teaches you. This guy says, tell me so that I may believe Him. I'm willing, Lord, teach me. Jesus said, you've now seen Him. In fact, He is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. 
and he worshipped him. Worship causes us to grow. It helps you overcome. I felt totally incomplete while I was here teaching without worship. Because worship is what helps you get the right perspective. It's what helps the Word be real to you. It makes you sensitive to the Spirit so that you can overcome your obstacles. It's necessary. This guy was in a place where he was thrown out. His parents, were they real loyal and helpful to him? Mm -mm. No, the leadership in his community and in his country, was it helpful to him? No, everybody in the world was dumping on this guy. Why? For no other reason than he won't disown the guy who showed him some mercy. So Jesus comes and finds him, teaches him who he is, and teaches him to worship him. Isn't that kindness? Isn't that awesome? He'll treat you no differently in your trial. That old footprints in the sand thing, huh? The kindness and judgment of Jesus. Now we're in the judgment section. John 9, 31. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. (laughs) Some Pharisees who were nearby and heard him say this and they said, What? Are we blind too? Well, yeah, that's pretty well what I think he's saying. The reality is that Paul calls the wise of this world foolish and the foolish of this world wise. Jesus calls those that have sight blind and those without sight seers. This is because you have to be willing to totally change your frame of reference. You have to be willing to totally rethink how you've looked at everything in life and accept what God's Word is true. You have to. That means that if you're used to seeing things in your life as un Uh, overcomable obstacles, things that are bigger than you. You have to be willing to accept what God's Word says about it and see it as an opportunity. Because if you claim that you see it clearly, if you claim, no, 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 nobody understands and the way I'm thinking about this is right, then Jesus says if you were blind, you'd not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, you got the right idea about things, your guilt remains. Now this is consistent with the rest of John. Guilt is already on the people. You can get it removed, but it's already there. And what's he really asking? Are we talking about blindness? No, all these people are not blind. That was a teaching example. That was something so that they would understand it. You have to be willing to totally rethink your life according to God's Word. If you do that, then you're credited with sight, even if you're blind. If you will not do that, even though you think you can see now, your guilt's going to remain. It's going to show you that you were blind. Well, isn't that a powerful motivator? Won't that make you think about the way that you act, the way that you do things? We really have to get the right perspective in life. Jesus' actions. We're going to close here, I promise. Jesus begins to make declarations. You all see that? He begins to say things about himself. His life is an ongoing process, the second stage, where there is no sin. You can examine his behavior and find nothing wrong with it. He's constantly displaying God's teaching, God's wisdom. In fact, I said, boy, we've never seen anybody teach with this kind of authority. Then you get all the way up to this fourth step where he's performing miracles to show them that God is with him, to show him he's doing the work of God, that they're one, which culminates in his resurrection. Y'all see that on the chart? That's supposed to lead you to one conclusion. He's God. That's supposed to be the only conclusion you could come to if you had an honest examination of it. And that's why I put that last. And I was kind of excited about learning to use those charts. (laughs) Y'all stand up and let's pray. Let's ask God to move us, to change us,
to teach us the right perspective so that we can be useful in our testimony. Jesus, we love You. Holy God. Lord, teach us to be overcoming. Teach us to be joyful. Lord, teach us that cycle of Christian growth. Your plan to reach maturity in us. Lord, we want to be godly in all of our actions. Holy, holy one, I'm not teaching because... I want people to be condemned. I'm teaching because I know that You are the only way that we can overcome. I want to be credited as somebody who saw God, who saw Himself as God sees Him. Somebody who saw the truth in God's Word and then acted like I believed it. I love You, Lord, and I pray that Your power be upon these people. Lord, that You revolutionize the way that they think, the way that they act, 